Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame beat up on another inferior opponent Saturday with a 56-3 victory over Tennessee State. Wake Forest graduate transfer quarterback Sam Hartman has led the Irish to touchdowns on 11 of the 12 drive he's played through two games, so all is well heading into Saturday's first road test at NC State. Meanwhile, in the ACC, Duke upset Clemson on Monday night, so we figured it was the perfect time to catch up with our old friend Connor O'Neill, who covers both Wake Forest at Deacons Illustrated and Duke at Devils Illustrated for rivals. As you may recall, Connor broke the news in December that Sam Hartman would eventually transfer to Notre Dame. Connor, thanks for rejoining us. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. Um, it's, about time, it's about time you guys talked ACC football since six of the last ten games for Notre Dame are against the ACC. <laughs> We're expecting another scoop from you today. <laughs> oh man, uh, I'll try to whip something up. <laughs> I, I think we, I think we have to start with last night's game. What was, what was the most imp- impressive part of Duke's victory over Clemson in your mind? Uh, that's a tough juggling act. Um, I've covered, I like to think I've covered the ACC pretty intimately since 2017, right, right in the first couple years of Clemson's rise to the top. And, uh, I've never seen a Clemson team look the way they did last night. Um, just completely discombobulated and, uh, not able to complete handoffs inside the five yard line. Um, they're usually the team that, takes advantage of your mistakes and they don't beat themselves and to see a team that beat themselves like that uh, with receivers that couldn't get separation. um, You know, you're, you're not going to like, everybody wants to talk about Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. We're not going to be followed with superstar caliber quarterbacks. I always, always like to throw in Taj Boyd. Like he was the guy before the guy. Um, he was a hell of a quarterback, and he, that's actually who Sam passed last year in ACC career touchdown passes. But um, I, I think you know not to not to keep this too much on Clemson, uh, but but I do think it, it was a little bit more about them than it was Duke. And then on the Duke side of things, I mean, this is everything Mike Elko said when he took the Duke job was basically this is not a rebuilding, this is not a you know we're gonna do what we need to do in the program for the first two or three years. And then we're going to be good. Um, he put together a hell of a staff. He got, I, I think one of the best strength and conditioning coordinators in the country and David Feely. And that's the name that I always try to bring up uh, when we talk about Duke as a program in general, because last night was, was also, it was like the first time I've seen a team from the ACC go toe to toe with Clemson for four quarters. Um, and in, in that strength and conditioning side of things, I watched it last year when Wake did it, that was a lot more airing it out, um, thrown over the top, Sam over the top, uh, he had what, six touchdowns in that game. Um, last night was more physical domination from Duke, uh, 199 rushing yards, ran for a bunch in the fourth quarter, uh, the, the touchdown run by Riley Leonard, where he bounces off an all-American linebacker that everybody can't stop talking about in Barrett Carter and Xavier Thomas is right there too. And Riley somehow gets away from them, keeps his feet and goes down the sideline for 44 yards. I mean, I tweeted during the game, like the last time I think we saw a quarterback make that kind of play against Clemson was the guy we talk about by one name in the ACC. And that's Lamar Jackson. Like that's just, that was that level of play. Um, 
a lot of takeaways, uh, obviously <laughs> sure. uh, talking here, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a monumental shift type of night. Um, I went through the whole weekend telling people in relation to Notre to Wake Forest that you can't take all your preseason predictions and, uh, you know, transpose them, project them onto week one and say, well, I was right about everything. They're going to be everything that I've projected for the next 11 games. Like some, some things are going to happen. Some things are going to change. You're going to be wrong about some things, but you know, week one takeaways. Uh, I think everybody that voted Florida state as ACC champion in, in uh, July, and this is where I raised my hand, uh, <laughs> feels pretty good about that pick based on what we watched on Sunday night and based, based on what we watched last night. Well, that was pretty comprehensive. The one part you missed not watching the game on TV is the announcer saying that kicker had made seven, eight, 70 yarders in practice. And I thought, well, if he could make a 22 yarder, I think that would help them in this game. <laughs> uh, but not all of it, I guess, was his fault. Um, the, the thing that I want to know about Duke, though, is how real do you feel Riley Leonard and Duke are in terms of a team that is going to stay in the top 25, is going to give Notre Dame a heck of a battle when they come um, later, I guess it's uh, later this month at the yeah, end of the month. Last day of the month. Um... There's so many games. Notre Dame is gonna be like halfway through their schedule by the end of september <laughs> i know i, I mean, always crazy. always thought the teams that played in week zero had to take week one off but that's not the case at all because like 13 of the 14 that played in week zero played in week one too yeah yeah uh to answer your question i mean look i've got i've got some questions about duke's depth and uh i kind of felt like mike elko uh, maybe not singling me out but i i Everybody likes to think that the coaches read our stuff. And when he's talking last night about how everybody talks about our depth not being good and we rotated just as many guys as Clemson, I kind of felt a little targeted there in the presser. But <laughs> I, look, we're we're still going to see what they're made of in October Hard and November. Uh, and, and really, it's going to start in that last day of September. Uh, but, you know, they've it's 14 games of Mike Elko's tenure and they've backed up everything he said so far. Uh, they've, they've backed up being a physical team. Uh, they've backed up that, that they can come together and believe, uh, the one thing that really stands out to a lot of people when you're first kind of reintroducing them to Duke football, cause it was a few years in the desert there under David Cutcliffe at the end of his tenure is this was not a transfer portal overhaul roster. Um, they filled some gaps where they needed to, like they've gotten some key contributors, but in a lot of places, these are like the last couple recruiting classes of Cutcliffe and players that played a lot of football when they were going two and nine in the COVID year and three and nine in 21. So it's, it's a lot of guys that experienced the kind of the, the downside of college football, that feeling of being left out of a bowl, that feeling of going home early in December. And, you know, that's where you get into sometimes the guys that have faced that adversity are better off for it down the road when they're fourth, fifth, and sixth-year players. 
I know you highlighted the strength and conditioning coordinator earlier. It, I don't know that that may be the answer to this question. What is the biggest impact or change that you feel Mike Elko has made that has put Duke on the path that it's currently on? That's probably it. I mean, you know, David Feely was at Miami and he was Miami's guy. But when the, when they hired Mario Cristobal, uh, Mario wanted to bring his own guy from Oregon, which there's no fault there. Like that's what every coach wants to do nowadays. But that was to Duke's benefit. Uh, maybe you could say it's it's finally reparations uh, <laughs> for the 2016 lateral game that, that had the botched call on the kickoff return that Miami won at Duke. Um, but it's it's pretty incredible to listen to the Duke players talk about their summer workouts. And we know that's like the most boring thing possible that we hear about when it's like media days in late July and players are talking about how great it was that they were in the summer workout program and how much bigger and faster they are. And it's like, well, that's great, but we don't get to see the benefits of that for another like month. So I don't, and, and every team in the country says it, right. right every right. team, like there's, there's no way to separate. We don't have access to the catapult numbers where we actually get to see <laughs> who's making the biggest strides. So it's just something that kind of goes, you know, underreported for, for lack of access. But when you see the results, like when you see a three win team from 21 become a nine win team in 22. And then when you see Duke do what they did last night against Clemson, it really starts to land home. And, and Elko has, has even told us, uh, yeah, everybody, when a new coach gets hired, everybody wants to know, all right, who is his who are his coordinators going to be? Like, I was guilty of it. I was curious who he was going to bring with him from Texas A&M, what connections he had from being in college football for 25 years. He's a first-time head coach. Who does he know that he's going to bring in? He has told us that the most important hire in his mind was getting a strength and conditioning coach that he trusted. And he, the way he explained it was, he like if if he needs to, he can go coach the defense. If he needs to, he can go coach the offense. Like football coaches are football coaches. He tries to get guys on his staff that aren't just, you know, a corners coach and only knows how to coach corners. You can fill the gaps if you have football coaches. But Elko can't go into the weight room and immediately pick up and tell the guys like this is this is what you need to be doing today. This is your max day. This is. You know, we, we hit these areas and these areas yesterday, so we're going to hit this and this today. Like, there's no substitute for what a strength and conditioning coach at the high levels of college football can do. And that's why he he really prioritized getting David Feely, and, and it's, it's paying a lot of dividends. Uh, I'll add here, too. I mean, Mike Elko was only at Notre Dame for one year, but he was on the ground floor of kind of the Brian Kelly renaissance when they had gone four and eight. Brian Kelly kind of clean house and Mike Elko was one of the new coaches, but he brought in Matt Bayless. Not only was it the strength and conditioning part, it was the sports science part of it. And, and the culture thing about, you know, leadership, they have these SWAT teams, their summer accountability teams and how they build leadership through the program. So Elko saw all that and I'm sure that was impressed upon him. So now I'll switch gears after that little speech to Notre Dame NC State. And I'm wondering what Notre Dame can expect from NC State that we might have not have seen in the UConn game, other than really bad announcers in that game. <laughs> uh, NC State is is kind of 
it's the same story. It's different year. It's going to be a really stout and physical defense. Um, they lost some guys. Like, they lost two linebackers that I thought really highly of in um, Isaiah Moore and Drake Thomas. They lost a safety that I thought was one of the best safeties in the ACC for the last couple of years in Tanner Engel. They bring back a lockdown corner in Aiden White. They bring back a linebacker who's seemingly been there forever, Peyton Wilson, who had, I think, the game-sealing interception at the end of the UConn game, about a minute left. Um, they're always going to have athletes on that side of the ball. They've always, for the last, I want to say, five or six years, they've, they've always had a defense that it's not going to be – up to the level of Clemson. Like it's never going to be that level of four and five stars across the board, but it's always going to be the next closest thing. Uh, at least when there was the Atlantic division and you were sorting out, okay, Syracuse, BC, Wake, Louisville state, and then Florida state and Clemson. So that's the way I think of NC state. I just, I have so many questions about Brennan Armstrong and I know everybody wants to make it out about the the reunion between him and Robert and a is going to be so great. And that's the guy that Brennan Armstrong threw for 4,000 yards at, at Virginia in 21 with, and everything's going to be honky dory. Like their offense was the same offense. It's been right uh, against UConn. Like they, they pound the ball into the tackles. Uh, it's three yards in a cloud of dust type of stuff. Um, I was uh I might be proven wrong. More dust this. when the running backs were carrying it than Armstrong. He was pretty <laughs> yeah. good carrying it. Yeah. I'm I might be proven wrong about this on the Notre Dame side, but going into the season, I said I looked at two transfer quarterbacks and said their receivers were better at their previous spot than they are at their current at their new place. And I said that about Sam Hartman and Brent Armstrong. Now Jaden Greathouse, Jaden Thomas, they might make me look like a liar for half of that statement, <laughs> but I mean, NC State, again, like Clemson, NC State has had this problem at receiver where they've got some big guys that aren't going to separate, so they have to win 50-50 and jump balls all the time, or they just have small, quick guys that can get pushed around off routes and uh, have their timing ruined a lot. So I I just – I look at it and it's like I I know Brennan Armstrong can throw the ball. I also know that Brendan Armstrong isn't throwing to anybody like Dontavian Wicks was in 21, like Keetion Thompson was the last two years. Billy Kemp, when he was healthy, was great for Virginia. Uh, In 21, they had a big tight end. was like 6'6", 260, Jelani Woods, who could run. They they just don't have that at NC State. And maybe maybe they kept everything vanilla because they knew they had UConn in the bag. I don't think you do that when you're on the road in game one, but – you know, maybe they did, and maybe they have wrinkles in there. Maybe Robert Anae is going to do everything that he did at Syracuse last year to make Garrett Schrader a really good quarterback. But I, I just I, – I don't know what exactly to expect from that offense yet. Counter with a quarterback as old as Sam Hartman, he's had probably good and bad examples against many, many, if not all, of the ACC opponents that he's played against. Um, last season, NC State intercepted him three times. Um, how do you think he learned from that game? Should Notre Dame fans be nervous that NC State has some sort of formula to to shut down Sam Hartman? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be all that nervous uh, just because it's such a different offense. I mean, I, I watched the Navy game and uh, Sam makes an extended handoff and runs behind the line of scrimmage and he's not getting hit. And like I – 
I've watched Wake's offense. I know Wake's offense works. But I've also got to think that Sam is kind of appreciative of the fact that for the first time in his college career, he makes a handoff and doesn't get wrapped by some 260-pound unblocked defensive end on the edge. So, yeah, I just – I think it's a different offense, and I think it's a different system. Um, all – like, it's a system that can work, and Wake's system can work. Uh, I, I don't know that there's any kind of rhyme or reason behind, like, NC State having a having Sam Hartman's number or anything like that. I wanted to ask you about the ACC expansion, w- whether you think this is – a good thing what what you think this will lead to but you know, keep in mind Notre Dame fans they're used to playing a game in California every year sometimes <laughs> they'll play in California and Texas in the same year so this isn't as big of a deal I know they're closer to California not markedly so but uh I, I'm just wondering what what your take is on on the expansion and where all this is headed long term and you guys really want me to talk a lot here don't you <laughs> uh, we like it then we can just <laughs> sit back and look good on a zoom that's not going to be used <laughs> uh i think it was a move made out of desperation i understand why the acc did it uh they have three teams that look like they're gonna try to challenge the grant of rights in the next two to three years and leave the conference and that's the three that voted against expansion it's florida state who has made no secret about their intentions it's Clemson who thinks they've, you know, they've thought they're SEC for the last six or seven years anyway. And it's Carolina, uh, which is a little bit of surprise there. But, you know, they're they're the one that's desirable. Like the SEC is already in the states where Clemson and Florida State are. The SEC is not in North Carolina. People in North Carolina have next to no reason to watch the ACC, the SEC network. And if you add the, the biggest program in the state, to your conference, bang, that's a state of 10 and a half million people that you're adding a lot of interest there. So the the whole the whole calculus of adding the three with three dissenting votes is if the ACC slips below 15 full-time members, then ESPN can renegotiate the, the deal with ACC Network. And that would, renegotiating means they'd give a lot less money to the ACC. And, you know, how much more, how much value, how much, how valuable is an ACC without those three programs in it? Um, as as much as I want to believe that Wake and Duke are programs on the rise, I don't know that their you know elevation is at that level uh, where they can just take over as as cream of the crop programs in the country. So I get it from that standpoint. I just I think that it was a move done preemptively when you had time on your side like the grant of rights keeps teams in your conference until 2036 if those if if say clemson and florida state in two years or or next year challenge the grant of rights and are able to get out of it you could still add those teams they're still going to be there for you they're not going to find greener pastures the big 10 didn't want them the big 12 didn't want them and the pac-12 is going to cease to exist basically so it it feels like you're doing something for the sake of doing something. Uh, it, it's preemptive move uh, that, that didn't necessarily have to be made. And that's, that's kind of where I have the problem with it. And then because I am in North Carolina, uh, I like covering basketball. <laughs> I, I grew up on ACC basketball. 
And I look at it as this conference basketball wise has had a problem for like three or four years now. That's too watered down. You have too many games against the bottom of the conference, watering out your schedule. And now you're going to add three programs that have awful basketball programs. Like just that side of it. I mean, if I'm pick a pick the name of an ACC basketball coach right now who is in good standing and not on the hot seat, I'm pretty pissed off if I'm them at this point. Counter cir- circling back to Clemson, since that is someone Notre Dame will have to play eventually. Do you think the problems that were apparent with Clemson on Monday night um, are fixable? There's not another transfer portal window in midseason, <laughs> is there? Their wide receivers didn't look fast. It's that's been a problem. Like that's been yeah. an issue. DJ threw six touchdowns at Wake Forest last year, and all of them were jump balls. Mm-hmm. And and I think one guy was like wide open because the Wake DB fell down or something. I don't know, but I, this is not a new issue. Like ever since I think Justin Ross missed the 2020 season. I think that was the one where he had the freak injury. Um, I remember opening that COVID year. They came to Wake. Game day was there. I watched in a empty. Uh, luxury box because I had COVID symptoms, but I was cleared to go to the game. I watched Trevor Lawrence just dot ball after ball, and they, I think he had five or six drops in that game against him. One of them was a guy in the back of the end zone by himself. Uh, this, this is not a new problem for Clemson at receiver. It's not a new problem for Clemson on the offensive line. Like, they have talent. If you look at the recruiting rankings on the offensive line, when you actually watch them play and watch them give up as much penetration as they do, the 16 team, the 18 team, the 19 team that lost to LSU, those teams didn't do that. They, they didn't get off schedule uh, as often as they have the last three years. That's something that, I mean, I don't know if, if Dabo has a come to Jesus moment and says, okay, Lincoln Riley can implement everything about the, not Lincoln Riley Garrett. I, I've been calling him Little Lincoln all day. Uh, but if if he just lets him have full control of the offense, because it it didn't seem like he did last night. It seemed like it was still a lot of Clemson principles of of the of the stuff that worked in the late 2010s and hasn't worked as well the last three years. I guess that's the the most instant fix, but uh, you know. Dabo's a football coach who's won two national championships, won seven of the last eight ACC championships. Is is he going to have that realization? I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I get I I would kind of bet against it, but I mean, your guess is as good as mine on that one. My last question has to do with Wake Forest. What kind of team they're going to end up being? How they are at quarterback? I find it. Curious. I don't know the whole backstory on how that guy goes into the portal, commits to James Madison, and ends up back at Wake Forest as its starting quarterback. Uh, no, that was his, that was his brother. Oh, that was his brother. Yeah, he, okay. he had a he had a younger brother, uh, Brett, who spent a year at Wake last year. Um, they thought really highly of him, but. Mitch having the extra COVID year uh, when Brett committed, they were whatever it would be two years apart in eligibility. 
and now they're only one year apart in eligibility. So I talked to Mitch about this at media day and he basically said, I, I couldn't promise my brother that I wouldn't be here for the next three years and okay. then leave him only with one year to be Wake's starting quarterback. Okay. That clears it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, but what kind of team is Wake going to have with, without Sam Hartman? Looks it's like they can run the ball in the first game. And, and and that's kind of where the focus needs to be going into the Vanderbilt game. Um, they told us often in August that they wanted to run the ball better. Uh, Dave Clawson had the stat of like they only had nine runs of 20 or more yards in all of last season. Uh, I know that like the the rushing yards per attempt and yards per game was their worst since 2015, which is the last time Wake didn't make a bowl game. Uh, it, it It's going to have to improve. The, the thing, the optimism at this point is they kind of were beating their head against the wall and running into a, a box that did not say to run the ball against Elon. It was just basically a let's let's see what we've got. Uh, we know that this is an FCS team where we're going to have some mismatches. If it's close, we know we can throw the ball to Jamal Banks on the outside and he's going to make a play. It was the type of, like, let's make sure this is what our focus is on. Um, it, it doesn't bode well that it didn't go well against the FCS program, but at the same time, it, it's, it's still going to be an offense that takes what it's given. That just wasn't the case of the, in the Elon game. So, I've I've kind of said all along, like I think this is a bridge year for Wake. Uh, I think that their schedule sets up pretty difficult. Uh, they have trips to Clemson, Virginia Tech, Duke, Notre Dame, Syracuse. Um, by the time they get to that 11th game in South Bend, they, they might look pretty ragged. Um, they've never had a winning November under Dave Clawson. Even when they won the Atlantic Division, they went two and two in November. So I always kind of think of November as that's that's when Wake uh, starts to slip a little bit. You know, it, it, it's a season where I look at it as get to six wins, maybe seven, keep your bowl streak alive. They 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 hold that in high regard there, and then get Mitch Griffiths back for his second year as a starting quarterback next year. See how many of your guys come back for fifth, sixth seasons. And and next year is really the year where you think you can challenge the top of the league. Well, all right, Connor, that's all we have for you today. We appreciate you taking time to talk to us, and I'm sure you will be hearing plenty from us as Notre Dame continues down its ACC opponents for the season. <laughs> with, with Joe Montana 2.0 at quarterback. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> By the hype. There you go. All right, Connor, have a good one. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one we have is from at Notre Dame Expert. 2023 Notre Dame is best prepared and focused team since 93. I get it's Navy and Tennessee State. Don't want to get too far ahead of my skis, but minimal holding, false starts, no delay of games, personnel mix-ups, blown turnovers, or blown timeouts, I think is what he meant uh feels different looks a lot different than lsu and uh florida credit to marcus freeman thoughts well my first thought is as the son of a former ski jumper who did get over his skis once and broke both kneecaps 
Uh, I think it's uh, fair to get excited as a fan on what the early steps of this 2023 Notre Dame team look like, but they're early steps. Great teams grow and evolve, and what that turns into later the season is still unknown. I think this weekend, NC State, some of the things that they pose and the talent level jump, we're going to start to get clues onto how much growth and and um, evolution is possible. Um, as Marcus Freeman said on Monday, and he tells us teams all the time, uh, don't let Notre Dame beat Notre Dame. That's a nice foundation, but now they have to build on that. They have to beat other teams too. Yeah, I, to say it's the best prepared and focused team since 93 seems like a, a bit of a stretch. I, now, I didn't go through every every year to to see if I would agree with that, but um, – that seems it's 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 just so hard to judge off of these two opponents, um, and like yes, it's a good sign that you don't have holding penalties or false starts, but if you're you it, it makes you, you're a little less nervous and uh, maybe not against Navy you I think you probably have a little bit more respect for Navy than you do Tennessee State, but when you're playing home against Tennessee State, like you should be pretty comfortable uh, even if you're inexperienced, like you feel like you have the upper hand there, um, and so you're not going to do things that you're not taught to do or, or lapse into mistakes. So I, I think that, that, that helps in, in a big way to make you look sharp. So um, I think uh, that is certainly a good sign, but I don't know that it's necessarily going to mean that Notre Dame's going to end up going undefeated. Um, so I, I think that Notre Dame still has to continue to prove what it has talent wise and that it can continue to play sharp against tougher opponents. Uh, next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. Can you comment on why you think the hit on Devin Ford wasn't even reviewed? I didn't agree with the Antonio Carter call, but I at least understand the decision to look at it. And Charles added Tyler, please don't kill me for asking. <laughs> is Tyler intolerant to targeting <laughs> questions? No, no, I don't think so. I just okay. shared my opinion. It was different than everyone else's on Twitter. And so they got mad at me. I think it should have been looked at. I'm not saying it should have been reversed, but I think it should have been looked at. Uh, Marcus, at his Monday press conference, reiterated his Saturday explanation that what he got from the officials was that it was the forehead and not the crown of the helmet. Um, you know, I think so many people look at the same targeting plays, and there's always – I mean, it's rarely that there's unanimity with the opinion. Uh, but again, a review seems absolutely to be in order if that's what the question was, which is what the question was. And yeah, I mean, tell me for, for saying that. No, I mean, my assumption, and now uh, assuming is not the best thing to do as a journalist, but is that they were reviewing it during the TV timeout. Like they had plenty of time to look at it over and over in the replay booth. Um, to determine if they felt like they needed to call an official review once they returned from commercial. So I think there was just a, so, I mean, Devin Ford's on the ground injured. They go to commercial break. There were lots of opportunities for the replay booth to take a look at it and slow it down um, to figure out if they felt like th this should be um, a targeting penalty. Um, so I think that that's my belief of why it wasn't formally reviewed because they had plenty of time to review it um, when the game wasn't on television. 
All right, next question is from Green Day 182 on the Insider Lounge. I am not one to complain about the referees, but the lack of consistency with regards to the targeting call Saturday was really bad. My question is, has Notre Dame considered employing their own referee crews as an independent, or is that not possible? I'm told the referees come from the visitors' conference, so ND has to adjust to their styles and points of emphasis in every game. You know, these official questions are interesting um, and something I don't give a ton of um, a ton of thought to as far as, you know, what conference are they from. In this particular instance, it in general, it is from the visiting conference. In this particular instance, it was an ACC crew with an ACC replay official. I think one of the guys does some AAC games as well. And one, uh, I think Jamal Shears, one of the officials, was actually one of the officials that worked the college football playoff championship game. So, I mean, it, it's not like they're not getting quality officials. And given how much Notre Dame plays ACC competition, they're going to end up with ACC when they go on the road against non-ACC teams they're going to end up with ACC teams when they play at home so it's pretty much an ACC crew more often than not so and then if you're going to play in the playoff you're going to get crews from other conferences that have different ways of calling things so I I guess you just have to adapt I'm not as wound up about where the officials are from and and if you know Notre Dame is not getting a fair shake it seems like the officials are either really good or really bad and it and and they're bad for both teams or good for both teams yeah i i don't think that different conferences have different points of emphasis with their officials i think it's pretty standard across the entire college football uh that they're they're working from the same rule book uh, it's not like there's an ACC rule book or an SEC rule book that they're they're relying on. So I, I don't know that 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 is making a difference in terms of Notre Dame having to adjust of like what an SEC crew is going to be like versus an ACC crew. I don't think those are things that Notre Dame is taking time to consider when they're preparing for an opponent what the refs are going to do and what kind of styles um, they're used to. I think they're expected to to be the same, and maybe they're not always the same. And you feel some type of way about how they're officiating um but they're not but they're all supposed to be doing the same thing and whether or not that happens maybe this is always the case all right next question is from ldl go irish on the insider lounge um i saw rocco spindler block and fall to his knees after contact i can see where the coaches are coming from his technique on follow-through didn't bring his hips up and legs under caused this i saw tyler's report about a downfield block my question is do strengths their drills and strength and conditioning continue to shape a player's body and work on enhancing footwork during the season. How a football player needs to be strong, a given, but also agile, mobile, and hostile. Spindler is hostile, but lacks agility and mobility. Your thoughts, as always, are appreciated. Well, I like the way you phrased the question. The The ones that drive me crazy in my live chat are the ones where there's not good tackling and they ask if they practice tackling and practice. <laughs> um, but this is a little bit different because I, I do think that it's hard for the average fan to understand and really the average media member, how much do they do the strength and conditioning, agility work, speed work um, during the season. Keep in mind, they have a 
20 hour work week per the NCAA. Now they can do some things on their own, like throw on the side or film work and stuff, but you really have to divide a lot of that into preparing for your next opponent. Yes, there is some strength work and you're getting conditioning and practice. And there they also do a period of, they call it, uh, what is it called? What's FSA stand for? Honestly, flex, I, don't, I have no flex idea. Flex strength and agility or flex, flexible strength and agility. But the, it's basically what they call their stretching period. So they're doing those things uh, as they start practice. That's the very first thing that they do. And that's usually what we get to see when we're invited into practice. We get to see the that stuff. So we do know that they're doing it. But I also think some of the things that you're concerned about, uh, LDL, is um, in Joe Rudolph's purview, and that's getting him to play with a proper technique, shifting his weight right, doing the right footwork. Those are all things that I think Joe Rudolph can handle, and I think that he is handling it. I think that you'll see Rocco improve as he goes along. You know, Joe Rudolph believed in Rocco, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why Rocco is still at Notre Dame and not somewhere else, because he saw that he had a chance to convince this guy that he was a starting guard, and but he's not a finished product, and so they're going to continue to work with him, but there's a lot of talent there to work with. Yeah. In, in general, strength and conditioning is more about maintaining than gaining during a football season. They're, they're not trying to overwork guys and make significant gains in the weight room. They're trying to make sure that they're maintaining their strength, um, but not overworking them and stressing them to make them be in worse positions and be dealing with soreness and not being at their best come Saturday. Um, you, you, you're, you're trying to sort of balance that. Um, the, where the work is done most in terms of improvement is with drill work and, and trying to make sure that those guys are um, doing what you're being asked of them. Certainly um, if Rocco Spindler wasn't agile or flexible enough to do the things that he was being asked, he wouldn't have won the job that he won. He, he has proven the ability to do that. His, pro his problem may be his consistency in making sure he does that. And that is what he and Joe Rudolph would be working on. Um, on a daily basis to get him better at doing those things. So I think that's sort of how I, I, I see things. And I, I think that's probably what, what Notre Dame's doing inside the program to try to address. And then it doesn't, it's not just specific to Rocco Spindler. Every player um, is being evaluated on how they're uh, executing their techniques and, and what they can do um, to correct those things and, and where they need help at the most. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. What are your biggest concerns for the NC State game, including ND weaknesses they are suited to exploit and strengths of NC State that could bother ND? I think the things that are concerning to the Notre Dame coaching staff going into it is NC State's balanced defense. They Last year, they were really good against the run and the pass, and they were the best pass defense in 2022 of the 12 2023 opponents and the history of success versus Sam Hartman. Now, again, he's in a different offense. He's got a running game to go with him, but you know, those are things that you kind of look at. And then I, I would say from the other side, arm, you know, Brendan Armstrong's playmaking ability 
including in the run game. He had 19 carries for 96 yards, a couple touchdowns. He's a big guy, um, so he can, you know, I don't know if lowering his shoulder is the right thing, but he can kind of bowl his way uh, past smaller defenders sometime. And then I think the step up in competition in a hostile environment, I think all those things are going to make it more challenging for Notre Dame, much more challenging than what they've seen so far. Yeah, even if NC State has questions at receiver, like Connor was saying earlier, that there's still there's st- the talent that they do have at receiver is probably still going to be better than what uh, Tennessee State and Navy have had at wide receiver. Um, so I think that those guys, um, Notre Dame's cornerbacks and safeties, will be challenged more um, with that. Certainly, NC State has had wasn't exactly the best uh, passing team in its its season opener. Um, so they still have their own issues to figure out, but uh, I think it's Brent Armstrong and his, his just elusiveness and making sure that he doesn't extend plays and make big plays happens because the longer a play, a pass play happens last, the harder it is for, for teams to cover it. Um, and we, there are some examples, which I'm including in an analysis that I'm finishing up today on inside sports.com of Notre Dame sort of losing contain of the quarterback. Tennessee state didn't really, take advantage of that but i think brennan armstrong is more likely to take advantage of that so that is a concern that notre dame has to be prepared for um and then offensively yeah i think it's just nc state being a sound defense and and not getting wrapped up in maybe some of the things you're gonna throw at it um and sort of having good responsibilities good good techniques and and some familiarity with sam hartman and maybe there's a tell or a way to to confused Sam Hartman that the NC State has figured out. I can't imagine um, that Sam Hartman would be unaware of those, so I would imagine those things would be fixed, but uh, it so, some th- sometimes things revert back to certain ways when you're live in the moment, and maybe Sam Hartman's been thinking about this, like I gotta I gotta remember this cornerback is there, but then you have a lapse in, in memory, and then all of a sudden you get caught up with an interception like he did a couple times last, last season, so uh, I think those are the things that that Notre Dame has to be cognizant of heading into NC State. Next question is from Bob underscore Oxnard on the Insider Lounge. Should Jaden Osbury spy Brennan Armstrong? Jaden Osbury is one of my favorite freshmen. So I am all for Jaden Osbury developing and getting playing time. But I, I think in this particular game and even moving forward, I don't know that you would put a freshman into that spot and dedicate that much playing time to him, even though it kind of fits his skill set. The other thing is Brennan Armstrong might have the weight advantage on Jaden Osbury. He's 6'2", 215. He's a pretty big guy. Um, But Notre Dame has to have a strategy to deal with this kind of quarterback. They're going to see running quarterbacks that, that get a lot of carries and Riley Leonard and Duke that you saw on TV last night, even Kate Klubnick was running the ball. Central Michigan's quarterbacks in two weeks, they had 19 carries between them. The starter had 17 and almost 100 yards there. Phil Jakovic against Pitt. So how does Notre Dame want to deal with that? I don't think they're putting one spy, and and Marcus was asked about this in the press conference, and I, I'm not sure that he gave – um, the answer that he wanted to give away his um, strategy, but I don't think 
it's going to come down to one person. And I think in some cases, depending on the down and distance, it may be a safety. Notre Dame, when they go to that six defensive back look, when they have the player on the field they call the Aztec, Xavier Watts kind of moves up into the box and is playing at the linebacker level. And I would think Xavier Watts in that situation would be the guy that perhaps had that kind of responsibility, just depending on formation and down and distance and so forth. It may be Thomas Harper at times. It may be a linebacker at times. But when you see how many of these kind of quarterbacks are on the schedule and that if you just had one guy dedicated to that, they kind of figure it out. Yeah. I think this is the best strategy. Yeah. I think, yeah. If, if they know that a certain guy is continuing to be the spy, like then you just move, you move your quarterback to get that spot open on the field and then throw to that spot on the field. <laughs> like right. there's, there's ways to sort of counter that. Um, You can't be that predictable. Um, now could Notre Dame use Jaden Osbury in a very specific role every once in a while? That could be possible. Uh, Jalen Sneed could be someone that could do that. They have a number of different options that they could do. And I think that's what Notre Dame will do is using different guys in different ways to, to make sure that Brandon Armstrong, uh, doesn't necessarily know who is spying him and when, when he's being spied. Um, but, uh, I think it starts up front with the defensive line and making sure that they're not giving up contain. They're staying in their rushing lanes. They're not penetrating too much. That was something that Marcus Freeman mentioned a few times yesterday. Uh, so I think there's a lot of things that will go into Notre Dame trying to slow down Brennan Armstrong um, and his running ability. But I'm impressed that he figured out Jaden Osbury's skill set. Not everybody <laughs> notices those things. I like that. Yeah. All right. We got another one from LDL Go Irish, and it is uh, a longer one as well. So give me a second here. Uh, during the spring, it seemed, and validated by in- input from both of you, that Jack Kaiser, Maris Leofau, and J.D. Bertrand would most likely spit the- split the reps inside. ND would also try and play younger linebackers at times, especially Nolan Ziegler, who, as we know, has been unavailable due to personal issues. And until late in camp, Kaiser seemed to be ahead of Leofau. Please explain how Kaiser got only 14 snaps. How is he to be ready if needed? Why would he stay and not be the next Jacob Lacey? Marist has a higher pass coverage grade. Not sure how that works as Kaiser has been thrown at once a completion for five yards, but a two yard gain. By the way, in my opinion, JD Bertrand has looked slow. Is he okay? Shouldn't Kaiser have more reps? Other than Kaiser, I thought coaches did a good job getting key players' experience. There's a lot of tentacles in that question. Let me start with the um shouldn't why would Kaiser stay and not do what Jacob Lacey did, which was uh, hold it four games and then transfer somewhere else. And, and he's spending this year at Oklahoma. Kaiser could do that. He has a COVID year. And talking to him, he's gone into this season feeling like this is going to be his last college season. He's got his undergraduate degree. He's got a master's already. I think he wants to get on with life, and he's hoping that's a life with football. And certainly, you know, what he does on the field this year could – facilitate that um he had 14 reps against tennessee state which i thought was low but again a lot of people played um jd bertrand and maris leofile played more than him so how did we get here jack kaiser surges past leofile in the spring and early in training camp and then without kaiser having any drop off leofile answers that he comes back and and becomes the player that 
Al Golden said he had heard about before he got there, and and now he's he's playing like that. So I think what Notre Dame has is a first world problem. What I've seen them do in the first two games, well, the first game was Kaiser was all over the place right. playing different positions. In the second game, Notre Dame primarily played two linebackers and played their nickel and their Aztec packages. So there were only two linebackers on the field at the time, a lot of the times, and that would be Leofow and Bertrand, and then the next line was Kaiser and Jalen Sneed. But again, those guys show up in sub-packages, and we may see more of those sub-packages against NC State, which may uh, hasten more participation from Kaiser. Here's the bottom line. I'm I thought about asking the Kaiser question at Monday's press conference. I did not use it. I'm thinking about using it Thursday. Again, I think it's a first world problem that they have all this linebacker talent. Um, As far as your um, assessment of J.D. Bertrand, he did not grade out well from the pro football focus grades from the last game. Um, And... I don't know that he looks slow. I, I didn't notice him a lot. Um, Tyler does the film review, so he watches things a little bit more diligently the second time around. Uh, but, you know, right now I think Kaiser's playing really well, and I do think he deserves to be on the field more. Uh, Yeah, I'll, I'll start with Bertrand. I don't think he has looked slow. That That's not something that had crossed my mind. Um so I'm not really worried about J.D. Bertrand. Uh, I think he is probably Notre Dame's best linebacker and will remain that. Um, should Kaiser have more reps? I, I think I'd like to see him more. I, I'm, I'm less worried about him getting experience against Tennessee State. I mean, Jack Kaiser is a fifth-year linebacker. I don't know that he needs more experience. Um, now he hasn't played inside a ton, um, but I don't know that, that at, at Tennessee State was going to challenge him to do that. Um and uh, Maris needs that experience too. I mean, Maris played a lot last year, but he struggled, and I think he's playing at a higher level this year. Um, and so Notre Dame is taking advantage of that and using him in different ways. I think um, that is what's going on with that. I, I don't see Jack Kaiser as someone that's going to all of a sudden ask to redshirt this year and, and, and transfer. That that would that does not jive with uh, my impression of Jack Kaiser and, and how he feels about this team. So. Um, I think he's going to continue to be dedicated to this team and find a find a role for himself, and, and hopefully he can get some more playing time. But um, it, it's hard to judge like snap counts on a game where the second half didn't matter. Like I, I don't like I don't I don't really put much into the snap counts in either of these two games so far because it's just not it's not a fully competitive game. So the snap counts are are kind of hard to judge, and you want to. I, I, so I'm not I'm not ready to like rule out that Jack Kaiser is going to be sort of left on the bench or, or, or sort of assume that Jeff Kaiser is going to be left on the bench for a majority of the rest of the season based on how the first two games have gone. All right. Last question is from at Ryden 41. Did Notre Dame see enough from Steve Angeli to make him a legitimate contender for quarterback one in 24, or does Notre Dame still need to see more? I think Notre Dame needs to see more, but I think that was a nice sample to add to his resume, keeps him in that conversation. Um, you know, and and again, he certainly put himself in the conversation with how well he played this summer, 
mm-hmm. how well he played during training camp. This was kind of another piece to to see who Steve Angeli is. But again, if Sam Hartman has the year that we think Sam Hartman can have, then I think that you have to say, okay, is Steve Angeli, Drew Pine, Tyler Buckner good? Or is he have the potential to be Sam Hartman good in 2024? If the answer is no, I think ND owes itself to to assess C.J. Carr as a freshman and also look in the portal and see if there's a Sam Hartman caliber quarterback in the portal again before you make that decision. But again, I thought it was really positive for Steve Angeli. Yeah, I think at the quarterback position, you always have to be aware of what's in the transfer portal, what could be in the transfer portal before you make any sort of firm decisions. Um, Notre Dame did that the previous offseason and may have made the wrong decision with that. It it certainly didn't play out the way that Notre Dame had hoped um, with Tyler Buckner and Drew Pine at quarterback. Um, So what what will happen next offseason? I don't know. I think Steve Angeli is is making a – more of a case for himself i don't know like certainly it's not enough yet this is the first sign of how he can hold up in a in meaningful moments and even then he's playing for a team that's up more than 30 points um so it's not exactly like he was in in a position to lose the game for notre dame but he did he did some nice things I, i there's still plenty of throws that he would need to make to be able to prove to be the the starting quarterback next season a lot of that a lot of those discussions, decisions, and evaluations will be happening from things that he's doing on the practice field. Um, but you need to see him in some game moments to get a better sense for that. And I think he passed that first real test against Tennessee State on Saturday. All right. That is it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with someone who enjoyed watching Clemson lose on Monday night. We are rolling through our weekly audio and video content with the Inside Indie Sports Podcast here every Tuesday. And over on YouTube, we have Football Never Sleeps live every Monday night, place your bets every Friday before a game, and post-game takeaways late Saturday slash early Sunday, depending on when we can get that up. And as always, stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. 